0: Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. Last week we finished John chapter 4. But since this is uh, the last week that we're going to be in John, I'm calling an audible, and we're going to John 17, um, sometimes known as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I'm sure you're familiar with the Lord's Prayer that's found in Matthew, uh, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. How many of you guys know it? Say it. Go ahead. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who sinned against us, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yes. All familiar with that. So that is considered the Lord's prayer. That prayer is more of a structure of how to pray, right? When, when he says, they say, teach us how to pray, he said, all right, when you pray, pray like this. Um, it's a great prayer to repeat. It's a great prayer to say, but it's a, it's, I don't want to say, I don't want to say a formula, because I want to say like, oh, if you do this, 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 and this, then God, but it's a structure in which to pray. Um, it, tradition holds that, you know, that prayer is called the Lord's prayer. But in John 17, we get a very detailed view of one of our Lord's actual prayers. Uh, Luke 5.16 tells us that Jesus often withdrew to pray, uh, and, and but we don't get insight into what that communication was like. We don't see what those prayers were, those prayers, often in frequent prayers, where but here in John 17, we get this great look of intimacy that, that Jesus has with the Father. And when we start to see this transition from Jesus's earthly ministry coming to a close, to him moving into this um, priesthood that, that Hebrews talks about, where he is interceding on our behalf in Hebrews 7, 23 um, through 25, it says, "...there were many priests under the old system, for death prevented them from remaining in office." But because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood lives forever. Therefore, he is able to once and forever save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. And so we see this really cool prayer of Jesus that contains these three different parts. You've got him praying um, for himself in John 17 verses 1 through 5. You've got him praying for For the apostles and the disciples in verse 6 through 19. And then you've got him praying for the church and future believers, uh, closing out the chapter. And I I don't think we're going to get to verse 20 through 26 just time-wise tonight. So we'll get through like 80% of it. But uh, let's take a look at this prayer and and hope that we're able to pull out um, some really cool things in this next half hour. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through 5 in John 17. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, "'Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so He can give glory back to you. For, for you have given Him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given Him, and this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began.'" Up to this point in the book of John, we read Jesus referring that his hour has not yet come. You see in John 2 where he's like, woman, my hour hasn't come. Um, But here he's saying the hour has come, right? It is time. Um, What is Jesus's hour that he's talking about? Yeah, but his hour, what was his purpose? His crucifixion. His hour of crucifixion has come. Um, and it's through Christ's death where God is glorified. And I find it interesting that it, in this humiliation, in this shame, in this execution, you've got Christ being exalted and Christ being glorified. It's this interesting dynamic where visually speaking, you see just that you see a criminal. If you're there witnessing it, that was, that was held for a criminal, But in this instance, you've got Jesus dying a criminal's death, and in that, God is being glorified and Christ is being exalted because his hour has come. Jesus said, Father, glorify your son. Now, John's purpose in writing his gospel is found in John 20, 31, that you may believe that Christ is the Messiah, and that by believing in him, you have life by the power of his name. And so all throughout the gospel of John, You've got these different testimonies. We talked about it in the first week. You've got testimony of the women. You've got the testimony of the Father. You've got the testimony of the Old Testament. Um, You've got all of these things testifying. John is building up a court case um, to to, uh, present the verdict that Jesus is guilty of being the Messiah, if you will. And so Jesus says, Father, glorify your son. Now, I want to read a couple of verses out of the book of Isaiah, and I want you to pay attention because there's going to be a pop quiz at the end of these verses. So Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give glory to anyone else nor share my praise with carved idols. Isaiah 48.11, I will rescue for my sake. Yes, for my own sake, I will not let my reputation be tarnished and I will not share my glory with idols. Now, question, is God willing to share glory, his glory with anyone else other than himself? No. So why would Jesus pray, glorify your son? Is that not a direct claim that John 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God? That Jesus is saying, hey, you don't give glory to anyone else, but glorify me. It's he's claiming his deity in this, and that, that in his death, in his crucifixion, in his resurrection, he gets the glory of all believers, the millions, billions, whatever the number is, you know, only God knows. That, that we praise him, we thank him, we, we submit our lives to him. But in glorifying Christ, what is ultimately happening is, is we are seeing God's ultimate redemption plan of humanity. And so God is glorified through the death of his son because we are made right with God through what Jesus did on the cross. That we are justified that we are, 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 are um, presented right before God. And so he's saying, glorify me so that I can give glory back to you. He knew that his life, that his plan, um, his, his job here on earth was the work of the cross. And ultimately, God would be glorified through his redemptive plan through the Son. John thirteen thirty one through 32, says, as soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son, and he will do so at once. Glorify me so that I may glorify you in your redemptive plan for your chosen people. He goes on to say that all authority has been handed over to me. And there's a passage when we talk about Christmas that we see um, on cards, we hear in sermons, and we read it a lot in light of Christmas, But I don't think I've ever read it in light of Christ completing his work on the cross. And it's found in Isaiah 9. It says this, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How many of you guys have heard that scripture in reference to the incarnation Christmas, right? Yeah. But it goes on to say, and think about this in regards to Christ being given authority. It goes on to say his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. You see the connection here that you've got Christmas and then you've got the crucifixion, that you've got the completion of who Christ is. Yes, he's wonderful, mighty counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, and that He has been glorified and given authority and that his kingdom will never end. What about Daniel 7? It says, In my vision, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man coming with clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Or What about what Paul writes in Philippians 2 as he is wrapping up this portion of Scripture? talking about the birth, life, death, and glorification of Christ, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to what? The glory of God, the Father, that through all this, God is glorified. Jesus continues on talking about eternal life. Now, Another question for you guys. Who gets eternal life? Hmm? Yep. Yep. How does that happen? Yeah. So that's part two. Part one is that God gives them to Christ. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father has given them, unless the Father draws them. And so you see in here where Jesus is reading, um, for you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one that you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know that you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. But first, you've got God drawing people. You've got God choosing people, God bringing people in And saying these are the ones that have eternal life. These are the ones, and it's because of that 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 we that we are able to be saved. Um, No one sneaks into heaven, right? No one no one is like crawling underneath the fence. You know, there's the whatever. Wives hell like no one like Saint Peter's like "Hey, hey 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 get that guy right. You don't like that doesn't happen. No one is saved without God first giving them the gift of salvation. In order to believe in him in the first place, you read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. All right? And so that's, God's, Jesus is like, hey, these are the ones you've given me. And this is how you have eternal life. Man, what an impossible path to walk, right? Knowing that you are ordained to die, that this was God's plan from the foundation of the earth, facing your, in, like your imminent execution, like my hour has come. This is, this is Jesus's, like, final hurrah with the disciples. And, and the truth is sometimes we can endure something difficult if we know there's something better on the backside. You know, it's like, all right, I know this job that I'm in is no fun, but there is a raise at the end of the year. There's a promotion promised at the end of the year. And so I can stick it out for these six months. But sometimes we can't. Sometimes we, we give up. Um, I hate to admit that my wife loves reality TV shows, and by, uh, by proxy, I get sucked in them as well. And it, 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 nev- it never fails that we w- we're watching a show and you've got these contestants that have to endure these physical challenges. And if they endure, there's prize money at the end of the challenge. It's like you get 5000 you get 25000 whatever. You know, you get a million dollars if you stick it out. And so many people, even though there's the promise of money at the end, they can't stick it out. But what happens here? Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not backing out now, right? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not leaving. And, and what, what allowed him, not allowed him, what, what, was the, what was the reason that he stuck it out? We read that in Hebrews chapter 12. It was the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. What was that joy? It was that God gets the glory. It was that he gets authority, and it was that we get right standing in eternal life. That because of that joy set before him, he endured what he had to. We get to John 17, verses 6 through 19. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know everything I have is a gift from you. For I've passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. I am now departing from the world, and they are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united Excuse me. just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that none of them was lost except the one headed for destruction as the scriptures foretold. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so they would be filled with joy. And I have given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. Here in this section, you've got Jesus praying for the apostles. Now, when we read the Bible, we've got to keep in mind a few things. We've got to keep in mind this, that the Bible was not written to us. What I mean by that is when Moses was writing Leviticus, he wasn't writing to Michael Ballard in 2022. Right? When Jeremiah was writing his book, he wasn't writing to Foundations Church, where we are. When, when um, uh, the author of Hebrews was writing to uh, writing it down. He was writing to the Hebrew people. He wasn't writing to us. However, that doesn't mean that we can't pull out scripture, like spiritual truths about who God is, um, that we can apply those truths to our lives, but we have to keep in, in context the big picture of things. This, this, why are we on the same page here? We t- kind of, we've talked about this a few times, that we have to understand um, where this is, where, where this the, the context and, and the history and all of this. So when we're reading this passage, you're like, well, he's writing through the apostles. Now, are we, if we are followers of Christ, are we disciples of Christ, right? We're followers, right? We are students of Christ. And so we can apply these truths. We can take these truths and say, hey, okay, I see that he was praying for the apostles, but, but I can pull out some truths. I can look at this and say, okay, this is what this, is, this, is what this applies to in my life. And so we, we, we see all that and we're, we're, we're plowing ahead with what we've got here. Um, Jesus starts with saying, these are the ones you've given me because they've always been yours and they have kept your word. Kind of, we go back, they've always been yours, right? That, that from the foundation of the earth, God has chosen you, he has called you by name. He has written your name in the, in the book of life from the foundation of earth. We don't have to rehash that. We've talked about that. And he said, they have kept your word. Now, have the disciples sinned? Are the disciples human? Have they sinned? They've messed up? Yeah. They've kept your word though, Jesus said. Have they kept every word to a T? No, they haven't, but they've kept their word. They have held fast to his word. They are genuine in their faith. They are progressing in their walk with Christ, in their holiness. Um, they believe the big theme of the book of John, belief. Uh, in the Greek, it's pistuo. You don't want to remember what that means. Don't look up there. There's a definition. Don't look up there. It's a saving faith, right? And the root word of that pistuo is pistis, which is faith. And so Jesus is saying, they have a saving faith. They have kept your word. They are, they, they, they are human. They have sinned, but they are holding fast to what I have taught them. And that's just what our call is too, right? Our call is perfection. We're getting, we'll get to that in a little bit. Our call is perfection. We still sin, but we hold fast to Jesus' word, and we continue on in our walk, becoming more and more like him. And so so, so we'll, we'll get to that here. No, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, but then we get to verse 9, which is, it sticks out to me. Jesus says, my prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given to me. It's very exclusive language, Jesus. You need to calm down before you get canceled, right? We want to make sure this is a friendly, welcoming environment for everyone. Why don't you just go ahead and pray for the entire world, and we won't have any more issues. No, my prayer isn't for the world. My prayer is for those that you have given me. My prayer is for those who have walked the narrow path. You look at Matthew 7, 13 and 14. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gates are wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. My prayers for those people. My prayers for those who have given up their life to find real life. Matthew 16, 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. His prayer is for believers. His prayer is for those that are remaining in the faith. And what's his prayer? It's that God would protect them and unite them. That Jesus is saying, hey, I watched over them while I was here on earth, and none of them were lost except for the one that was headed for destruction in the first place. That's pretty crazy language. Who's he talking about? Judas. <laughs> I've heard people say when talking about, you know, friends or church attendance or ministry, you know, they're like, hey, you can't, you can't win them all. You can't please everyone. Jesus had 12, and even one of them was a little squirrely. And I'm like, ah, Judas turned on Jesus because it was prophesied that he would turn on Jesus. It wasn't a lack of leadership on Jesus's part. It was, it was it, that, that it was foreordained in Scripture that Judas would betray Christ. If you want to take it a step further, when Jesus was picking the 12 disciples— he knew which one would betray him, and he still chose him to fulfill the scriptures. You read Psalm 41.9, even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food has turned against them. Jesus is praying that, that believers are protected and united. When it comes to unity, that's a pretty popular buzzword that we hear a lot. You know, we need unity in our country. We need unity in our politics. You know, we just need to be all one, holding hands, you know, sing kumbaya. We need to be together. Um, I want to read a really refreshing passage from the mouth of Jesus that uh, I read to my son before I kiss him on the head and put him to bed. It's out of Luke 12, 49 and 52. Very um, life-giving passage. This is from Jesus. It says, I have come to set the world on fire, and I wish it were already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me, and I'm under a heavy burden until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart Three in favor of me and two against me, or two in favor and three against. Isn't that pleasant? I kiss my. I read that to my son and kiss him on the head and put him to sleep. Night, buddy. All right? I've come to defy people. Love you, buddy. Go to sleep. Have a good night. When it comes to unity, we've got to make a very clear distinction here. That there is no unity between God and the world. That there is no unity. If you want to take take a, the reference out of, out of Corinthians, what fellowship does light have with darkness? All right. What partnership is there with good and evil? Um, there's a clear line in the sand when it comes to the things of God and the things of the world, and, and there there will never be unity in those two spheres. Um, they're at odds. The unity that Jesus is praying for is not a, a worldly hey, let's all hold hands, you know, between people groups. He's praying for a unity that has been modeled from the foundation of the earth between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune, the three unified God, and this is this is supposed to be modeled in the body of Christ that we are unified. In mind and purpose, and that when we are unified, there is joy in the body. When we are unified, it is a strong witness to the earth. And when we are unified, God is glorified, right? That is the unity that he's praying for. Um, Paul talks about it in Philippians 2, right before he talks about having the same attitude as Christ. Philippians 1, uh, or 2, verses 1 and 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. That is talking about believers, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose. It's important to remember whenever we talk about unity, heck, whenever we talk about whatever we talk about on Sunday mornings, just think of the last week. we talk about, you know, dealing with difficult people. We talk about uh, having hope. We talk about having a good marriage. Um, none of that is possible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating and sanctifying you on a daily basis. It's impossible. And so so we can say, hey, those are some good principles, but if you are not unified with God, if you are not, I've said this before several months ago, If you are not at peace with God, you will never have the peace of God. If you don't have hope in Christ, you will never have the hope of Christ. And we could play this word game on and on, but if you are not um, following Christ, then, then these things, these ideas of having a good marriage, these ideas of having hope, these ideas of dealing with good people, they're a pipe dream because they won't happen. You want to get mad at your spouse because they're not submitting to you, but you have yet to submit to Christ. And so there's this idea that like, oh, it's just, it's a good, no, it's a God principle. It's not just a good principle. And so your life has to be in line with the spirit and have the Holy Spirit working in you. If we want to be unified, this, excuse me, this prayer that Jesus is praying is impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Is the church perfect in this? No. Why? Because there's probably a lot of self-centered people who haven't fully submitted their lives to Christ. And so we see these divisions and we see, we see some, some times where God isn't glorified in the way that we treat other people. And so we have got to be in line with the word of God. Jesus goes on to say the world hates them because they do not belong to the world. Now, John 13 to John 17 is one big dinner setting, right? This is the Last Supper. And so what you have happened from John 13 to John 17 is like Jesus' final discourse with the disciples. And so in John 15, you know, just... You know, a few minutes, half an hour earlier, Jesus is talking to them. And he says this, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would have listened to you. I find it really interesting that whenever things don't go our way, whenever people aren't nice to us, um, whenever we get belittled for our faith or persecuted or whatever, it's like, God, why? What did did I do wrong? I'm following you. Why aren't you listening to me? Do we expect better treatment than Jesus? Some of us do. It's like we're entitled. It's like, I know. why? Jesus said, hey, if they didn't listen to me, they're not going to listen to you. The world hated me. You're no longer a part of the world. I have chosen you to come out of the world. You're not going to be welcomed because of it. Who's the ruler of this world? John 12 and John 14. The prince of this world. Guess what? He's opposed to the things of God. He's not for you. He's not excited that you are following God. Right? There's no neutrality in the spiritual world. You see churches that try to try to lean into um, to a certain people group, or try to lean into to affirming certain lifestyles, and they try to walk this spiritually neutral. I'm trying to appease one side, and, and trying to say no, and trying to justify it biblically, but it's 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 not in line with the Word of God. And they're trying to walk this spiritually neutral line. Well, we just you know we're no 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 no. Like that's not that's not a possibility. That we are, before we are in Christ, we are called children of wrath. We're called enemies of God. There's, not, there's no Switzerland in, 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 uh, in Christianity. You're either for him or you're against him. And so Jesus is saying, they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you're looked down on, when you're made fun of, when you're persecuted. Luke 12, I didn't come to bring peace. I'm, I, there's division There's still going to be divisions in households. We shouldn't be surprised because of that. And so Jesus doesn't say, hey, take them out of the world. He says, no, leave them in the world. But while they're in the world, protect them. Is he praying that that we are protected from hardships? No. So what's he praying for then? Right, the, the prayer is not for protection from hardships, but our prayer is that our faith would endure that our faith would be preserved, that our faith would last, and our faith would hold strong. Right? Similar to what Job experienced. You know, even Satan trying to cut him down and take him down and saying, hey, watch this. I can make him curse you. I can make him sin against you. And in all that Satan did, Job didn't sin against God. If you see, read Luke 22, you see an interesting encounter. Luke 22, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Peter failed, right? But his faith didn't. He endured. Why? I don't know. Maybe because Jesus prayed for him? Can you imagine if the prayers of Jesus went unanswered? Wouldn't that be really odd? that Jesus is praying for his disciples to be preserved, that God protects them. Do you know how the disciples died? Most of them were executed for your faith. Does that mean God didn't protect them? That God made them escape hardships? No, he he protected their faith, that their faith endured. That their faith was a lasting faith. And, and, And we see that prayer. And if God is praying that God, or if Jesus is praying that God keeps those true believers and protects them by his name, that he protects the followers and guards their hearts, then guess what? It's going to happen. Philippians 1, 6 says this, I am certain that God who began the good work, who began the good work in you? God will continue his work. Whose work? His work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love that God has revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't have this one on the screen, but why not? We're here. Let's read John 10, 27 through 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Jesus prayed it. Paul reinforces it. That true, genuine believers, man, their faith will not fail. Jesus goes on to pray, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word which is truth. We could paraphrase this. Jesus plays some word games, but you can't really separate the two, right? His word is truth and truth is his word. So they're, they're interchangeable, but they're not. You got to know what truth is his word. And so um, some you could say, hey, make them holy by teaching them your word. Some translations say sanctify them. What does that word sanctify mean? There should be a definition for sanctification up there. It's all good if it doesn't. It means to grow more like Christ. In the Greek, the same word for sanctify is holy, to be set apart for a specific purpose. Um, if we want to define it, trying to use the New Testament, we could say this that in, in, in anticipation of God's return, right, and, no, and knowing that perfection is never fully realized here on this earth, it's this believers are to live a holy and blameless life, being pure in their conduct and behavior. It's progressive that each and every day you are more and more like Christ. There may be days where you fail. You look at the life of David, but he was marked as a man after God's own heart that you continue and progress on in faith, in holiness. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, but you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Paul said in Romans 6, 19 through 20, he makes this illustration about slavery, he says, because of your weakness, of your human nature, I'm using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all of this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led ever deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living, so that you will become holy. When you were slaves of sin, you were free from the obligation to do what is right. What was the result? You are ashamed of the things you used to do, the things that ended in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. Now you. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. And how does sanctification happen? Jesus said, you make them holy by your word, by the truth. What is your word? Your word's the truth, which means this, that when it comes to biblical teaching and biblical doctrine, we must have sound theology. We must have sound doctrine, right? Doctrine is simply instruction as it applies to lifestyle application, So in other words, doctrine is teaching imparted by an authoritative source. Biblical teaching, this word. What's our authoritative source? It's the word of God. And so, sanctification comes through sound doctrine. Doctrine that's based in the word of God. Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on how you live and on your teaching. That same word there is doctrine. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of those who hear you. You can't grow in holiness. You can't grow more like Christ. You can't work towards perfection if you do not have a clear understanding, a clear line of what God's word is. People are like, no, nah, man, it's just about relationships, bro. We just got to be with one another and hang out. You, you don't know what godly relationships are if you don't know what the word of God says. You can't have sound doctrine if you don't know what the word of God says. You don't know how to live according to the Bible if you don't know what the word of God says. Jesus said, sanctify them, make them holy by the truth. What's the truth? The truth is your word. It's not up for debate. The path of holiness is clearly lined out in the Bible and sound doctrine is non-negotiable. As we're wrapping up tonight, I just want to give this warning in in the the, uh, 32nd theology generation where we see really popular clips that have millions of views and likes and comments. Hey Amen, brother. Yeah, you preach. You get these, um, these, these reels, these 30-second these clips of some well-known pastors that have a big crowd cheering them on, and they say some things. And sometimes some of the things they say aren't even close to what the Word of God says. Can I tell you, we have to line everything up according to what the Bible says Just because something sounds good and just because a lot of people are clapping doesn't necessarily mean that it is the word of God. They might be clapping because it's not the word of God. And so we've got to be very careful about who we are letting speak into our lives and that our doctrine and our theology has to be sound. It's got to be sound. I forget who said it, but they said the difference between Right or between wrong doctrine, or or doctrine is, is between right and almost right. Right, that there is a difference there. It's you've got right, but then you've got almost right. Almost right isn't right. And so we've got to make sure that it is lined up with the Word of God. If it is not lined up with the Word of God, if it is not sound biblical teaching, throw it away. Throw it away. Save it for the world. Let them have it. You, God's chosen people. No, this is your standard. The Word of God is your standard not influencer pastors who just make people clap. Let's pray. God, we come for you tonight. God, thanking you for your word. God, we pray that we are sanctified, that we are made holy by your word. God, we pray for for each and every person in here. God, that we grow in, in you, that we become more and more like you. God, work in us, move in us. God, let us be a light to the world. God, let us be unified just as you are unified. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.